Welcome to the Teachers Unify podcast. I'm Sarah Lerner. In this episode, we'll hear from Antonius Wiriajaya, an educator, artist, and gun violence survivor. He speaks about the moment that changed his life, being in the gun violence prevention space, and how art helped him through his healing journey. We are here with Antonius Wiriajaya. And Antonius is not only a board member of Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence, he is an educator and also a survivor of gun violence. So uh, we usually start with asking about your family, where you're from, your childhood, all of that. So the floor is yours. Thanks for having me. I am um happy to be here and i live now in new york city but i was born in jakarta indonesia which is the big city in <laughs> indonesia and i moved to the states when i was um 8 years old and um we moved around for a bit but basically grew up in boston so you would imagine what a kid who grew up in the tropics felt like feeling the first winter in Boston, <laughs> I actually thought the world was ending because I saw the leaves had fallen and the trees were dying and everybody describes fall. But we imagine experiencing fall for the first time when you're eight years old, you know, that really felt like the world was ending. So I hated Boston and I wanted to get out <laughs> as soon as I could. And I left, I went to college somewhere else. And then I moved to New York when I was 23 um, my parents thought I was just fooling around. <laughs> and for the most part, I was. But I was also trying to develop some sort of career. And by the time I turned 29, I became a professor, actually, at NYU. So I was really, really excited to be doing something with my life, I guess. I am from New York, as I mentioned before we started recording. I love the fall. It's my favorite time of year. But as a New Yorker, and I have been to Boston a few times, there is this rivalry between New Yorkers and Bostonians. And I'm not going to say that I can blame you for wanting to get out of there. <laughs> I like Boston. <laughs> Please don't get me wrong. But the fall is, oh, it's my favorite time of year. But those New England winters are rough. So yes, I... Are. I applaud you for making it there as long as you could. <laughs> How long have you been in New York City? I moved here in 2007. I remember it was in January. And I remember it was a very, very warm January. It was actually 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And I had all my stuff with me and I had my coat. And I actually layered up a lot because I thought it was the easiest way to carry all my stuff to New York City. And by the time I got to my apartment in Harlem, I was drenched in sweat. <laughs> and I remember just being like, oh, my God, now i got to walk up five flights of stairs. <laughs> you probably looked like the little brother in a Christmas story, just all bu <laughs> bundled yes. up and to see like this much of your face. <laughs> yeah, that was it. But it was 70 degrees. <laughs> so you moved to New York City in 2007. And then in 2013, your life changed forever, I would imagine. I, I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth. 
Can you tell us about your experience on July 5th of 2013? Sure. I was um, in my apartment in Brooklyn at the time. I moved around a lot, actually, because rent is too damn high here in New York. So you just move to wherever rent is more affordable. And I moved to a beautiful area called Bedford-Stuyvesant, Bed-Stuy, do or die. And I um, remember it was a really nice warm day. And it was today right after the 4th of July. I had had a really good time with my friends the night before. And I was waiting for another friend of mine to text me to say, hey, we need you over because they were moving and I was going to help them move their stuff. So I got the text message and I remember walking out the street and I uh, had to decide between two trains. It was either the G train or the A train. And the G train never runs. It just doesn't. <laughs> so I walked over to the A train, which was a little bit of a longer walk. And I remember about a half a block away from where I lived, I started hearing what I thought were fireworks, but they weren't fireworks. And I looked down and I realized I was actually bleeding from the chest. Um, a man had gone out of his car, pulled out a gun, and started shooting at a pregnant woman who was sitting at a stoop in front of me. She was shot twice in the leg, and then she fell. And then the next bullet missed her, and it hit me in the chest. And I remember ducking and covering. And I had actually worked at a, a veteran's hospital in my past. So I remember what the veterans told me whenever somebody got shot, they would either um, die by bleeding out or infection and to check if there's a bullet wound behind me. And so I did, but it was the most unimaginable pain. I can't even describe it. And I was shot in the chest between two ribs, about half an inch away from my heart. Wow. And I was really fortunate that it missed my heart. But um, bullets travel once they are inside a human body, especially cheap ones. So this one um, traveled through my guts and destroyed my stomach. So I ended up being taken to the hospital and they, they put me into a five-day coma. And when I woke up, I was the happiest person on earth, but also the angriest person on earth. And I remember seeing my mother actually there and I was just so surprised because in my mind I was just like out for a couple hours and it turned out to be five days um there's way more to it but you know it's a lot to try to remember and I have to admit like now looking back it's a lot easier to talk about it and not have to relive it so I'm happy to describe more if you want yeah, sure. Whatever you're comfortable sharing. So I think the thing that struck me the most about the experience was there were people who always said to me, like, oh, it's because you moved to Bed-Stuy. What were you thinking? You know, but in reality, um, the area I lived in, I um, <laughs> was going to move out of anyway because somebody was buying out the apartment I was living in to build a multimillion dollar mansion. So, you know, that was happening. Gentrification is real. And not only that, like my neighbors had never experienced violence of that kind in the broad daylight like that. Speaking of my neighbors, it was because of them that I survived. I had 
you know, put my hand on top of my bullet wound, but I was bleeding out and I was losing consciousness. So a barber ran down from his barber shop. He actually looked like an angel <laughs> when he came over to me and I was like, oh God, is this angel taking me away now? <laughs> but it was just, um, a, you know, a barber and a do-rag. <laughs> so, and then he asked me, what do you taste? And he wanted to know that because if I tasted blood in my mouth, I would say iron. But um, it said I tasted, um, I think it was peach cobbler because I made some and I took some to a potluck the other day. Um, so he said, you're going to be okay. But he put his hand on top of my hand to make sure I didn't bleed out. About a year later, after everything got settled, I actually found him again. His name is John D. Morant. He's a He's been a barber in my neighborhood for quite some time. And um, I asked him, how do you know so much about bullet wounds? And he said, because I got shot the same way that you did. So he pulled up his shirt and his scars mirror mine exactly. Wow. Except he was shot on the right side and I was shot on the left. So that's how he knew how to take care of a guy who had been shot. I wish the story ended there and we became friends and we parted ways, but it didn't happen that way because um, about a month after we first met John D. Morant um, and I, the man who saved my life, I got asked to speak at the March Across the Brooklyn Bridge. And I, of course, called John. I was like, hey, John D., you got to come and listen to me talk. I'm going to talk about gun violence and how to stop it. But he said, hey, I'm out of town. I'm visiting family in the South. So I tried calling him again a week later, no response. And I thought I'm getting you know, I'm being ghosted here. But instead, his cousin actually reached out to me on Facebook and said, I'm so sorry, but John D was killed. He was shot and killed in the South while visiting family. It actually is very common. It's actually sad to look at the statistics, but people who are victims of gun violence are often repeatedly victims. And, um, it's also very sad, but like when you're in presence of somebody who has had gun violence in their past, you are also more likely to experience it in your life. We always talk about numbers. We always talk about, you know, statistics. <laughs> and when you put a name to it, like I did, it's just really, really, it just says so much, you know, it just is because the pain of surviving a bullet, that was very hard, but surviving the person who saved my life, that was even harder. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, thank God he was there and he came to help you. But I'm I'm so sorry that you lost him and you you two weren't able to have this lifelong friendship and brotherhood because I know that would have been very important for you. And I imagine it would have been equally as important for him. Yeah, I'm just saying like, I think also it just says that it, it shouldn't matter if like that's the case or not. You know, these, we're still human beings and mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if, um, if he is a hero or not. It's just it's so sad because like these stories happen daily and the numbers are just going up. What was your healing process like? Did you have to go to physical therapy, learn how to do certain things again? Like, I don't even know what I had 17 months of physical therapy and um, actually I only had seven months in person physical therapy and the rest I had to do on my own. 
and about about a year and a half of um, therapy, including psychiatry. It took me about three months to learn how to walk completely normal again. And wow. I was walking with a cane, but I actually kept that cane for a while because you know how New York is. Right. Yes, I do. <laughs> so if um people push you around, but if you hold a cane, they actually give you a little bit of leeway. I still had to ask for seats and stuff because it's still New York. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um I remember actually one time, you know, there are some crazies in New York. So my mother and I were on uh, a subway together and this woman just started to like harass my mom. And then I remember hobbling over with my cane being like, don't talk to her like that. And this lady was like, also with a cane. And she lifted her cane up and I lifted my cane up. <laughs> and I was like, mom, let's get out of here. Um, I guess the point of that story is that my mother actually had to take up a lot of time from her life to take care of me. And I had another caretaker, actually, that was paid for by my insurance. But then the insurance ran out. So people had to take a lot of time off to take care of me, my mother, my siblings, my father. How long did you have like your mom with you and, and family members outside of the, the caregiver you had? Again, they're from Boston. So they had to like, my mother basically moved in with me, but mm -hmm. like everybody else had to commute back and forth every weekend. And it was a good three months of that. Because again, I couldn't even lift a glass of water. I wasn't able to lift more than um, a couple ounces. So wow. I just wasn't able to. It's just impossible. When um, when they took me into the hospital, they had a decision to make. It was a 50-50 chance of me surviving. So they had to decide whether or not to operate on me. And I didn't realize I gave consent. <laughs> I actually was passed out. <laughs> and um, I consented and I woke up with a really large scar running from my sternum down to my, past my belly button. And that scar, along with, another one that goes into my chest and the bullet wound itself and two other scars that were draining um, the organs that I lost. Um, all of them took up a lot of time to heal and also took up a long time to recover from. But those scars are at least visible because they're on the human body. Nobody really talks about them. Um, the difficulties of the human brain. You know, nobody expects to walk down the street and suddenly be shot in the chest. So I ended up getting PTSD and I would have flashbacks to that moment. And I would also have flashbacks to the hospital because that was quite traumatic. And that took a lot of effort and I still have it today, but I am in much better control of it. That's for sure. So I know you said that you had both physical therapy and also mental health counseling and psychiatry. So how did you and how do you take care of your mental health? I'd like to point out how lucky I was because I was working for NYU. I was a postdoc, actually, and I was about to become a professor or um, a rank of it, not at NYU, but at NYU Shanghai. And they even delayed me teaching for a couple months so I could recover. So it's actually because I had such good insurance that I was able to do that. And the people who were there for me fought for me to make sure that I could have that and I could have um, the therapies I needed and not think about it. 
because the reality is I left the hospital with $110,000 in um, bills. And that doesn't count for the amount of therapy I was going to have and all the back and forth I was going to get. So I just want to point out again that like I was very lucky <laughs> to have insurance like that. And for the majority of people who experience gun violence, they don't get that. It's a very different experience mine compared to other people who have experienced gun violence. And the fact that I was able to do all that in a year and a half, I think is quite miraculous. Mm -hmm. But it's really because I had really good insurance. Do you still go to therapy? I do, but I go to therapy for um, other reasons. And I also, <laughs> <laughs> I also um, don't take any more of the... Uh, I was on SSRIs when I was released from the hospital because I was in, you know, in a totally different world. I was mm -hmm. not here. So I needed something to make sure that I was stable enough to be able to fight my anxieties. But um, that took a long time to get out of, to ladder down from that, because it can be quite dangerous to um, completely take that off your system. For me, like I started therapy. I mean, I've, well, to be truly transparent, I've been in therapy on and off my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, but related to the the shooting at my school, um, I started therapy pretty shortly after, and it took ay, took about six months, I would say, to like fully remember and like comprehend what I heard, what I went through and I wasn't even in the building. I was in a building nearby. You know, I too was diagnosed with PTSD and I used EMDR, which mm -hmm. I don't know if you did that, but it was so, so helpful. I take Zoloft every day and I'll probably be on that for the rest of my life. My aunt always says it's better living through chemistry. <laughs> so <laughs> I was speaking with... um a former coworker and actually a, a coworker today. And one of the positives, if you can even call it that, that came out of what happened at my school was this openness and willingness to talk about mental health and getting the help that you need. And prior to the shooting, and I'm not saying that like we originated this in Florida, but you know, prior to the shooting, like kids didn't talk about going to therapy as openly as they did after. And there's always been such a stigma around caring for your mental health, the way that you care for your physical health and, you know, just your general well-being. I'm certainly thankful that I also have good insurance and was able to do this. But I, I know that there are people who face community gun violence, domestic violence, school shooting violence, like any kind of gun violence, who don't have the resources to care for their mental health. And it just, it makes me so sad because that's such a huge part of your healing. Like, yes, time passes, but the wounds don't heal, whether literal or figurative, if you don't care for them and care for yourself. You are very lucky. And I'm glad that you had the support 
from your colleagues and the insurance because I can't even imagine. I know what I went through, but I can't even imagine having gone what you went through without having the support and the resources to move forward because there's no moving on. When I think about that, I think about everybody else surrounding me that day because I wasn't alone. Um, There was a mother with two little girls that was near me. They didn't get shot, fortunately. I'm so happy that they were not affected. But they saw me, you know, and I don't know if they'll ever recover fully from that. I know that they won't. And I don't think they ever got any resources. And then also thinking about what my parents had to go through. My mother doesn't speak very good English. So when they told her, she misunderstood and thought that I had died. So she drove uh, five hours. Actually, she was speeding four and a half hours from Boston to New York, thinking she was going to identify my body. And um, she was devastated. I, I don't think she will ever, you know, recover. I actually took her to one of my therapy sessions once to make sure that she um, was able to talk and also to offload some things about it. <laughs> yeah. Her. Oh, my God. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. Do you know the um, the woman who was pregnant? Did she survive? She did survive. The okay. baby she was carrying did not. So mm. it she had a miscarriage right after. And wow. she did come visit me in the hospital, but I was in a daze. And also I got to talk to her during our trial. So that was very fascinating. <laughs> she felt so much guilt, you know, and that's actually something very common among survivors. Mm-hmm. There is so much survivor guilt and it's multifaceted. Her guilt is that she felt guilty bringing me into this conflict. My guilt is that I survived this, but John D. Morant, the guy who saved my life, didn't survive yeah. his. There's so much guilt that has to be um, talked about when you're a survivor. Yeah, it's. I hear it from you. You're like saying, but I wasn't even in the building. It's like, <laughs> what kind of? No. Well, <laughs> yes. And I, I heard myself, <laughs> I heard right? myself say that too. Saying I wasn't in the building, you know, yes, I was still on campus. I kept 15 kids safe. The SWAT team let us out. Like I experienced what I experienced. I didn't see what the people in the building saw. I didn't hear everything that they heard. I heard what sounded like firecrackers when I got outside. Mm -hmm. So I completely feel for you on that one. But I didn't see anything like of the the horror and the what went on in the building. But I I definitely experienced it like everyone else. And I found that after there was this huge divide, both spoken and not spoken, between those who were in the building, those of us who were just on campus in other places, and those who were not on campus. And for a long time, I didn't call myself a survivor because I wasn't in the building. And then, you know, it took therapy and talking to other people. And they're like, you are a survivor, Sarah. You know, you kept the kids safe. You were on campus. You lost students and colleagues and all of that. But it really took a while for me to refer to myself that way. And I remember I did And one of my students at the time who was in the building in one of the classrooms on the first floor that had students pass away, 
she got very angry at me for calling myself that because to her, I didn't survive what she went through. And my experience was different. I almost kind of felt like she thought it was less than, you know, it's, it's difficult. And I, you know, I understand the mom with the kids who saw what happened to you and no, they weren't shot, but they experienced it. Right. And the woman who was pregnant didn't experience what you experienced, but she experienced it. And I think, you know, within, within the different realms of gun violence, I don't think that being divisive is the right way to do it because you you don't know the other person's experience and right. to to minimize it or lessen it in some way it's dismissive and it's not it's not fair. It's certainly a problem that only we have and therefore we're still negotiating the language for it. Mm -hmm. Because there has never been a nation like ours. There has never been an experience like ours where we have to talk about school shootings, where yeah. I have to talk about being a bystander and where they have to label me as an innocent bystander. And they always use that in the media, by the way. They use innocent bystander walking down the street for me, whereas the way they talked about John D. Morant, black man, uncooperative with the police, police shot in the back, died on the way to the hospital. Mm. So the way they describe us that is also being created. Mm -hmm. And because we are being um, a part of it, we have no choice. Uh, at least let us create the words for it, the vocabulary and the vernacular. So I understand why some people might not understand, mm -hmm. you know, how somebody can be a survivor when they haven't actually been shot. But the reality is they have not experienced that. Right. <laughs> and that is something that is not something I would ever want anybody to feel. So it's very hard to explain. I always say that this is like the shittiest club to be oh, a part of. <laughs> it is. And I, I will stand by that forever. And unless you're in this club and in this terrible inner circle, you don't get it. But then there are the ripples and the people on the periphery like your parents, like my parents and mm -hmm. my husband and my children and your friends and the pregnant woman and John D. Moran and like all of these other people connected to you and to me and to all of us in these different circles. And it impacts everybody in different ways. Like I didn't even think about the impact that my my trauma and my PTSD had on my husband or, mm -hmm. you know, the the level of stress and worry that my kids had or my parents, because I tried to shield everybody from that because I didn't want them to worry about me because I I was fine, quote unquote. It's so far reaching outside of this shitty club that we're in that I think exactly. a lot of people also don't think about. I think, again, this is the shittiest club and one club that we don't want anybody to ever join. No. So unfortunately, the numbers keep growing mm -hmm. and it just keeps happening and repeating. I see this again and again. And I get I get random strangers who come into my DMs and say, hey, I survived the shooting. I don't know what to do. And um, to be put into a situation like that where you basically have to become a mentor for somebody else 
and again the shadiest club that I've ever mm -hmm. experienced um it's difficult so that's why it's important to continue to have something like therapy mm -hmm. or some sort of outlet to make sure that that's being expressed um fortunately for me I, um I've always done art and I made art and I use my art to express myself the way I expressed everything that I felt I realized again was at least the physical scars can be seen right maybe they can't see the mental but they can at least see, or emotional, they can at least see that much. And I was going through, I remember after six months, um, it seemed like the whole world had moved on, but I hadn't. So I was really frustrated. But by that point, I was taking selfies of my scars every single day since the day that I was released in the hospital. And um, that exploded. I went, it was one of the first times I went viral. So people just reposted those blog photos over and over and over again. It's just me showing off my scars. And I thought in the beginning, like, why is this so important for people to see? And then I realized it's because they've never seen the long-term consequences of what happens to a victim of gun violence. Yeah, it's, it's the reality like, of what you faced. It is. It's not like I get better after the hospital. <laughs> if anything, it got worse. You mean you it didn't leave really and bad. you weren't cured? <laughs> right. There is no cure for gun violence. No, the only thing no, we can no. do is prevention. Exactly. And that's just sadly what I was trying to express. And the only way I could was through photos. Talking about your art, I am a huge fan and I am obsessed with your food <laughs> photography. <laughs> so can you tell everybody about Food Mask You and how it started, the projects you've done and how all of your art has helped you in your healing process. Sure. I have been using art to express trauma. And the trauma that's most obvious is the shooting. So I did a selfie every day of my scars for years. It was from the day that I was released from the hospital until the day of my shooter's trial. But then when COVID hit in 2020 in New York, in New York City, everything got locked down. And I wasn't able to access anything, like no studio to go to, no one to chat with and talk about art with. I had several shows that were being canceled, and I was on a Zoom call like this on a very serious one. And somebody actually got on, and they had on a filter that they couldn't turn off. It turned them <laughs> to um, a pickle, so they look like a pickle. <laughs> And they were really embarrassed because it was like, I can't turn this off. I don't know what to do. I am not a pickle. <laughs> and I remember I was eating a kale salad. And also in New York at that time, there were not enough masks available. So I was sewing them like crazy. So I took my materials and I took my kale salad and I put it on my face. And I said, hey, I have a filter on as well. I'm a kale. And everybody on that call was like, what are you going to be tomorrow? <laughs> So I said, um, I don't think I can do this on Zoom all the time. I'm just going to start an Instagram account. It got viral really quickly and the New York Times picked it up. Then um, I had one post that was a million six hundred thousand views. The next one was three million seven hundred or so. And people also stole it. <laughs> they posted it everywhere. Um, then I got really serious about it. I actually started thinking about like what's next on this part. 
So I started going to restaurants and doing it in restaurants. People were freaking out. And one gallery show I did, I had put on a food mask and these two people were eating off of it. And that went incredibly viral, but not in my account. It was actually like other people's accounts reposting it. So if you've been on TikTok and you scroll and there's some guy that's got two people eating off his face, that's probably a caption that says, um, would you be paid $10,000 per month for this? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized like it really tapped into what happens after what happened after the pandemic, which was the dual reality of it, right? So people who were wealthy got wealthier and the people who were service industry people and people who were working and both essential workers and oh, workers who just, you know, had no other choice but to keep working, um, it got much worse. I loved that it came out of something that, again, brought joy to people's lives, because that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to make people laugh during a very traumatic time. But instead, it developed into something within, you know, the realms of my art practice that I really believe in, actually. <laughs> so Food Masker continues to be very popular. I, this year, have been on billboards internationally. Facebook used me as their billboard. They actually advertised Facebook using my photos. That's awesome. And I still get a bunch of requests. But um, again, it started as a sort of a way to bring joy during a very difficult time in people's lives, but also became also a statement on consumerism. So um, I have to kind of stick with that messaging as well. I love it. Oh, it's thanks. so creative. And like, Honestly, I wait for <laughs> for your <laughs> posts <laughs> to see what is on your face. But it's just so I don't I don't know any other word other than like clever and awesome and like who would have thought of this? Binder clips and food on your <laughs> face and I just I love it. Do you feel that doing these posts, this art, does that help you with your healing process in maybe the same way or a different way than the the selfies of your scars? Incredibly so. I think they're both um, responses to trauma, definitely. You know, some people go inward and they talk to themselves and they write and they, exp you know, express it that way. Um, for me, it was like, there's something that I feel that I can't say in words because it's ineffable. There is no word for this. Just as how you, how you and I were trying to negotiate words for Survivor. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be words for this because this is a newly created thing. So how do I express it? And for me, the only way I can is through performance and photography. Um, and because I'm able to say that, it's no longer internal. And I feel catharsis. I feel incredible catharsis. <laughs> So um, even if nobody was looking, I think I'd still be making the art. I will be looking. So please oh, continue making it because, <laughs> because I enjoy it, if I can be selfish for a moment. How do you balance your art and being an educator? Oh, it's hard. I was full-time teaching for a really long time. And then Food Mask popped off. <laughs> I had to actually tell my school, hey, um, I'm going to take some time, time off. And now I, you know, have a good balance where um, I can teach and then I can focus on the art. 
But definitely for two years, I full-time focused on the arts because it was an opportunity of a lifetime. So are you teaching like part-time now? Yes. Still at NYU? No, I'm now teaching at City University of New York, CUNY, oh, Queens College. I know Queens College. So you are in a unique position where you are clearly a survivor of gun violence and you are an educator, not from the same situation, but how do you navigate and how does it give you, I guess, a different perspective as an educator having survived gun violence? I actually get this a lot because I'm in so many groups. It's actually (laughs) really funny because there are a bunch of us like um, gun violence survivor groupies who just goes to every single meeting. Um, I haven't seen them as much recently because of COVID. And uh, I know people are like, what, COVID? That's like, so 2020. (laughs) Um, For people like us who are immunocompromised, it's still very much a thing. So I... um, remember seeing people being like, oh, you're at Mom's Demand. I'm going to Mom's Demand. You're at Every Town. I'm going to Every Town. And then um, Gays Against Guns, they were really, really loud. So I started going to them. I love them. Yes, so loud and so fabulous. So people on Gag are always like asking me to talk. And people are like, I thought you were shot in the pulse shooting. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and then people in education are like, I thought you were part of a school shooting. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm here to remind you that the majority of gun violence is not actually portrayed in the media at all. Yep. There's not even one mention of it. And I am one of those. I mean, there was like one mention of me in seven news where they were like, isn't this Binus Sander was walking down the street and shot in the chest. He will survive. <laughs> and That's it. But the reality is, like I said, 17 months of pure hell, you Mm -hmm. know, trying to get back to a normal life again. And that's why it's important, actually, that I get to uh, speak out at these sort of events. So again, I love that people when they are incited to do something because they see something on the news, maybe a school shooting, maybe a shooting at a nightclub a bowling alley, a church, anything. That's so horrible, right? Mm -hmm. But that shouldn't be the only reason why people are talking about gun violence because the majority, again, happens and they're not even reported. You're absolutely right. And when we've spoken as Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence at these various conferences and anytime we've done media, that is one of the key points that I I'm like determined to make that while school shootings get the majority of the media coverage, it is such a small percentage and people don't realize that or they don't want to realize that. But that's the reality that, you know, what happened at my school is so random compared to community gun violence domestic violence, suicide, like all of these other things that also make up gun violence. Do you find or have you had any um, any students who have shared their experiences with you? Well, let me back up. Do you share with them? (laughs) Do they know about you? Like, how does this all work? 
That's a great question. So um, I never tell my students I'm food masku, number one. <laughs> Some of them recognize me. <laughs> and I also never tell them about my gun violence experience. But students are students and they're smart. And yes, they Google they people. Yes, they do. And they've Googled me and they know about me and they've seen what I've seen and uh, they've seen what I've done. So I remember one student, um, he was a taxi driver. He actually came up to me after class one day and said, hey, I just want to let you know that I read your blog. And I'm like, oh, oh, wow, that's that's really heavy. <laughs> and uh, he said, by the way, I was held up by a gun one time and I pushed it off and he fired and I almost lost my thumb. And then I asked him, like, did you ever talk to anybody about this? And he said, no, <laughs> never talked to anyone. We went to the hospital, they stitched him up and then that's it. So, no, it happens a lot. And um, I think actually when we were doing that year or maybe two years for some people like me of teaching remote, we experienced a lot of that because we got to see the homes of people mm -hmm. and it was so invasive. We didn't yes, want it was. that. No. We were never trained for that. And there were there were times when I was actually worried for my students and I didn't know what to do. Yeah, it was because we were watching them in their homes, you know, so definitely, again, even though people don't want to talk about it as educators, we have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And again, it comes to the root of the problem, right? Like violence is violence. Yes. Violence with guns leads to murder and suicide. Going back to the issue at hand, um, if you put as many measures in school shootings as you can, it's only going to be a band-aid to the problem. Absolutely. The root of the problem, again, is gun violence, the guns. How did you find your way to us at Teachers Unify to End Gun Violence and become a board member? Oh, you can um, you can thank and blame Abby for that. <laughs> Abby Clements <laughs> is a good friend of mine by this point, because here's the cool thing about Newtown and the people of Sandy Hook. That happened the same year that I got shot. So that was December, and I was shot in July. They reached out to me. They made sure I was going to be okay. Um, when I spoke at that march across the Brooklyn Bridge, they volunteered their time. Somebody edited my speech wow. to make sure that it was going to be clear, because I had like 40 pages or something, <laughs> and they concised <laughs> it to be like five minutes, which is great. They really stepped up. And the Clements especially, like all of them, like what a great family. Abby um, reached out to me and said, hey, I'm starting this new nonprofit and I would really like you to be a board member. So of course I could not say no because I remember how they were there for me. And um, I actually think back to like what Gabby Giffords sometimes says, you know, she practices her speech for months because she has to. So um, there was one speech where he was, she was like, you know, he was there for me. I'm there for him. So again, that's, that's the crux of the gun violence prevention movement. You know, um, they were there for me. I am there for them. To further our, you know, love and shout out for Abby. I met Abby in October of 18, seven, eight months after the shooting at my school, we were in Washington, D.C. for the Student Gun Violence Summit, and that was when I met her for the first time, and we became like instant friends, mm -hmm. and she 
was and has been and always will be such a huge support for me. And leading up to the one year mark and, you know, really anything since she has been someone I can just call and scream on the phone, not at her, but scream on the phone (laughs) and cry and vent. And it's so crazy. And I don't know if you have found this speaking to others who have gone through community gun violence, but for us, for me, at least in like the school shooting community, subsect of the shittiest club in America, all of our stories are very much the same. Yes. Like Abby's was five years before mine, but you just switch the name of the school, switch the name of the city. It's the same thing. When I spoke to Amy Stevens from Oxford High School, it's the same thing. Like we are all going through the same thing. And it's so crazy because, again, the circumstances of the gun violence while it may be different, the trauma and the feelings of community and isolation, the healing and the dealing with students and parents and caring for yourself. And it's all the same. It's just, you know, insert city, insert school, insert year, but it's the same story. Have you found that when you've spoken with people who have survived other kinds of gun violence, community gun violence and the like. Definitely. It really hurts me the most when I talk to moms who have had their children been shot and killed Mm -hmm. because I tell my story and I tell them how I survived it. And they must be thinking about their kids and what it would have been like if they survived. Yeah. So it is, like you said, just replace city with a different city, replace name with a different name. Mm-hmm. You know, there were there are so many young boys who uh, get shot in this country and their stories never get told. So somebody has to tell them, right? Mm-hmm. And it ends up becoming a job for their family members to do that. And it's hard. They're not getting paid for any of it. They're not getting any sort of special treatment for it. And actually, a lot of them get bullied online. And that's one of the things that I experienced immediately right after coming out of the hospital, doing my blog. I got a lot of bullies and people were jumping on me and telling me I'm an idiot for what I believed in and what I was saying. For sharing your story? Yes, what? definitely. I don't share this with everybody, but I had one gun nut, I'll call him that, send me a bouquet of flowers to my house. (laughs) And I was really uncomfortable because this person basically knew my address. And it was insane saying like, well, I disagree with what you say in the newspaper. I want you to recover. And I'm like, that's definitely not a good thing to do. So uh, when things like that happen, I reach out to, well, I do actually call the police, but I also reach out to my community and they've experienced very similar different things. It's a shitty club you never wanted to be part of. And for me, it's a family that I never wanted to be a part of, but I'm grateful to have. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've said to Abby over all of these years. Like, I'm so glad that we met and that we have each other. 
but at the same time, I wish we didn't know each other. Exactly. But I then wish I we had feel never been able to. Right, but then I feel like an way. asshole for saying that because she's such a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> but I also wish I didn't know her because then this wouldn't have happened to either of us. I'm glad that we know each other, but I also wish that we didn't know each other know. <laughs> because then we would be living alternate versions of our lives, you know, not in this shitty space. I can't thank you enough for doing this and sharing your story and being so open and teaching the children and doing what you do with your art and just everything else. You are an incredible human being. And I just thank you so much and for the work that you're doing with Teachers Unify, just the whole, the whole bag. I just thank, thank you. you for everything. Thanks so much for having me. And it's such a pleasure to be able to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. Usually we're in like a big board meeting. Yes, we are on a, on a very serious Zoom. On a very serious, and we're trying to like not waste any second of it. Right. So. I think I'm going to use a filter, put something on next time. I think yeah. we both should. We just won't tell Abby. <laughs> we'll both be pickles. <laughs> yes. I don't even like pickles, but I'll dress up like a pickle. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence on Instagram and threads at Teachers Unify and follow the podcast on both platforms at Teachers Unify PC. Mm -hmm.